Let me open us up in prayer. Jesus, Jesus, we need you. We want you. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word tonight. God, be with us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, in thinking about our topic tonight, I was reminded of one of my favorite Super Bowl commercials from about five years ago. So we're going to take a look uh, to get started. the best. That kid, he's so great. You know, I love that commercial for a lot of reasons. Obviously, the ending is, is the kicker, right? The little kid doesn't quite get the bigger picture. You know, his dad is in the kitchen starting the car. And what struck me about that is I think we too often miss the bigger picture. Well, tonight, we're studying uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians. And we're going to look specifically at the last half of chapter 6. See, in chapter 6, Paul is really, he, he's come to a climax of everything that he's been writing in the book of Ephesians thus far. And he works really hard. The bigger picture that Paul is, doesn't miss the bigger picture. And this bigger picture that Paul is talking about, well, it relates to our struggle as Christians. And this is what he says, the first three words of Ephesians six twelve. He says, for our struggle. See, Paul knew that his first century audience had all kinds of struggles. They had relational struggles. They had identity struggles. They had struggles with what they believed about Jesus and the relevance of Jesus to their lives. Struggles that we too have. Paul also, but when Paul says our struggle, what he's not saying, what he's not talking about takes that form. The struggle that we have to wake up for a quiet time, though of course our struggle sometimes takes that form. Paul's not talking about the struggle to be patient with a roommate or a friend, though our struggle certainly includes that. You see, we all have struggles, and despite these smaller struggles, Paul has a much bigger struggle in mind. Paul wants all of us to realize that every single one of us is involved in a cosmic struggle. You see, I would imagine most of us in here are used to thinking about our life as Christians, walking the Christian life and the different struggles that we have, but I wonder how much of us have actually stopped, have actually stepped back from our struggle, consider and to reflect on the ultimate source of our struggle. You see, the Bible teaches us that every one of us is engaged in a cosmic struggle, a literal battle to maintain faith and hope in Jesus, despite the opposition that we face. And let's be clear, 
as Christians, you and I will face opposition in one form or another. And so tonight, Paul pulls back the proverbial curtain, and he gives us a glimpse of the bigger picture of the ultimate source of that opposition, of the ultimate source of our struggle. And so to help us understand our passage, I want to against important questions. I think it'll help us. First, who is it that we struggle against? Second, what is it that we struggle against? And third, how do we overcome this struggle? So first, who is it that we struggle against? This is what the rest of verse 12 says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our, our struggle, Paul says, is not only physical, it's much bigger, it's spiritual. You see, in other words, Paul is saying that whether or not you and I acknowledge it, there's an evil and cosmic struggle right now, a war happening between good and evil. And this war, Paul says, is not metaphorical, it's real, an actual battle, a definite struggle, the Bible says, between good and evil. And we see evidence of this struggle in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 12, verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Okay, maybe right now you're thinking to yourself, what is this guy talking about? War in heaven, forces of good and evil. Maybe you're uncomfortable, but let me just say this. Maybe this seems a little hocus pocusy. But let me just say this, the Bible is not shy at all about the fact that the spiritual realm really exists. And within the spiritual realm, the Bible tells us, are angels, non-human, intelligent, members of creation. And as we read the Bible and we become familiar with the story, we see angels appearing throughout the story. And though the Bible says little about how or when angels were created, we do know from the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, that God created everything good. He created it all very good. And because we know that God created all created, all that angels really truly exist, we know that God must have created all angels good. The problem, however, is that not all angels stayed good. You see, by the time we get to the third chapter of Genesis, we're introduced to a character familiar to many of you as the serpent. And this serpent is the one who tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, the same tempter who in Revelation is later called the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. So the serpent of Genesis 3, that tempter in the garden is really de the devil, Satan. And Eve, is that somewhere? And so what this means is that somewhere along the line, the after the creation of angels, whenever that was, but before the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, some of the good angels that God created rebelled against him, defected from their goodness, thus becoming the source of evil. And Jesus, later in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, he tells us that Satan is the chief of these rebellious angels. He's the chief of demons. And so you see from the biblical story, the Bible is clear that Satan and demons actually, truly, really exist. 
They're not just power is real qualities, as some would say. They're not just metaphors. No, they exist. Their power is real. And these dark forces, the Bible tells us, will do anything they can to get between us and God. And so our first question, who is it that we struggle against? This is who, Paul says, Satan. Satan is the ultimate source of our struggle, a struggle that's spiritual. It's cosmic. So second, what is it that we struggle against? Or put differently, what are Satan's tactics? You see, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and he warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says this, the devil prowls around. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, Peter uses this graphic image of a lion to capture our attention. He says, look, the devil is actively seeking to destroy our relationship with God. He's prowling around. He's looking for someone to devour He's scheming against us, hoping that we'll be terrified of him, hoping that we'll fall prey to his deceitful schemes. Speaking of deceitful schemes, I, uh, I came across a really interesting article earlier this week about an African, this, uh, and this article was about their hunting techniques, particularly their hunting uh, this this uh, these ducks, right? And so there's a stream or a river or some body of water near where this tribe is, and, and there's this flock of ducks that always lands in this same area. And what these hunters have found out is that every time they approach these ducks, the ducks fly away. Of course, they're going to fly away, right? Um, and so what they've done is that they got smart. And so they go upstream, and they throw a pumpkin in the water. And the pumpkin kind of floats down the stream, and it gets to the ducks, and of course, the ducks fly away because it's a pumpkin, right? But they do it again. Pumpkin goes down the stream, ducks fly together, do it again, do it again, and before long, the ducks are so familiar with the pumpkin, they don't even move. And when it gets to this point, what these guys do is they hollow out pumpkins, bigger pumpkins, and they put them on their heads. They get in the water, and they float down the stream, all the way down. They literally float into the middle of this flock of ducks. Ducks have no idea that they're underneath these pumpkins, and one by one, shoop, just pull them under the water and kill them. Be on guard, the Bible says. Because the devil is at work in the world. He's scheming. Hiding himself because he's working himself. Here's the deal. He's hiding himself because he wants you and I to sink. He wants you and I to struggle. And Satan and his powers will do anything they can to get us to abandon Jesus. C.S. Lewis, a great author, many of you have read a lot of his books. He wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. And the fascinating thing about this book is that it's written from the perspective of an older demon writing to a younger demon, giving him instructions on how to tempt and corrupt and, and accuse human beings. It's, it's fascinating. But in the preface of this book, this is what Lewis says about Satan and demons. He says this, Devils, two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist 
or a magician with the same delight. See the two different camps that Lewis is talking about? Ask yourself for a second, which one of those camps would you fall into? Are you the kind of person that takes Satan and his powers for granted? Maybe, maybe even further than that, you actually disbelieve in their very existence. Right now. I can tell you right now. I know this for a fact. I know that there are people sitting in this room right now because our staff have talked to them who experience very real and very vivid demonic warfare. And if you could talk to them like our staff have talked to them, they would warn you. They would beg you to know this stuff isn't made up. It's not fictional. Satan and his powers are real. Or are you the kind of person that maybe has become obsessed with spiritual warfare? You see, you go to the opposite extreme, and you find a demon under every bush. I'll admit Satan is lurking around every corner. You see, I'll admit I was a part of a ministry in high school for a while that now, looking back, kind of with hindsight, in my opinion, some of the leaders, I think, had an unhealthy interest and fear of Satan's power. See, I was taught to believe things like if a cell phone rings in a sermon and it creates a distraction, well, that's for sure Satan's fault. See, one time I remember being at a summer camp, and it was kind of one of those open-air deals. We're in this auditorium, and, and I don't know what it was, a bird or a bat. Something flies in. It's like, you know, kind of doing the swirling thing, and everyone's like, ah, you know. And um, I remember he's against us. Peter's looking at us, you know, and saying, we need to pray because Satan is here and he's against us. He's trying to mess with us. See, spiritual warfare was so overemphasized that it became consuming. Even when I wanted to stop thinking about it, I couldn't. Okay, but you have to hear me say this. I'm not saying that Satan can't, and I'm not saying that he doesn't do those things. And for that matter, I'm not saying that he, he doesn't and can't do far worse, because I believe that Satan does cause real evil in the world. But I am saying, though, that it's, that it's unhealthy for us when we start to attribute every bad thing that happens as spiritual warfare. We can't underestimate. See, both extremes are errors. We can't overestimate. We can't underestimate. But regardless, Paul says, he reminds us that we can most certainly be sure that Satan is actively scheming against us. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. Paul writes, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You see, Paul exhorts his audience. He is exhorting us to be strong. A literal translation of that verb would be be made strong. Be made strong in the Lord. Put on the fast. God, Paul says, because the devil is scheming against us. And so that second question that we asked, what is it that we struggle against? Paul tells us Satan's schemes are ultimately what we struggle against. You see, this word devil, it actually means accuser or liar. And that's why Jesus says in John 8, he says this. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. 
I recently uh, came across a Lady Gaga interview in New York Magazine. I know it's a funny transition. Uh, it was a while ago. Uh, but listen to what she says. It's, it's, it's interesting. She says, what I've discovered is that in art, as in music, there's a lot of truth. And then there's a lie. The artist is essentially creating his work to make this lie a truth. And then he slides it in amongst all the others. The tiny little lie is the moment that I live for, my moment. It's the moment the audience falls in love. See, this is exactly what Satan does. Now, let me, let me say this. Lady Gaga is not Satan. Um, <laughs> I realize we could go there. Not <laughs> On record, Lady Gaga is not Satan. But <laughs> yes. But what I am saying... What I am saying is that Satan works just like this, right? Because Satan throws a thousand lies at us every single day. And when we start to believe them, when we start to see these lies as truth, you know what Satan does? He rejoices. The moment that we fall in love with Satan's lie is the moment that Satan lives for. And the lie that Satan loves to use, it takes two forms. And they come from his own name. Satan loves to accuse us, and he loves to tempt us. And so he celebrates us by getting us to believe that God could never love us. And so he celebrates when we have such a low view of ourselves that we think that God wants nothing to do with us. He says things like, you did that? God can't love you. Well, you're still struggling with that thing? God won't forgive you for that. See, Satan wants you and I to look more at our sins than our Savior. He wants us to obsess over the sins that we've committed in the past or doing now, thinking that the damage that we've done is irreparable. He wants us to believe that the doubts and the feelings and the inner struggles that we have discount us from God ever wanting a relationship. And so day and night, Satan works to accuse us. What about you? So you're thinking to yourself, what area of your life is Satan trying to make you think that you aren't good enough for God and that you never will be? Which of your sins does Satan cause you to dwell on? Where is he causing you to doubt God's love and his mercy and his grace? You see, Satan loves to accuse us, but he also loves to tempt us. Think about Adam and Eve again in the garden. What did, what did Satan say to them about eating that thing? He said, oh, oh, surely God didn't mean that you would die, right? God just knows that when you eat this fruit, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like him. Just go for it. Or think about in the Gospels when the devil brings Jesus up on a mountain. And he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. And I'm going to give you all the splendor that goes along with them. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. You see, if you're being tempted, you're in really good company because Jesus himself was tempted in every single way that you and I are because that's exactly what Satan does. He shows us the bait and he hides the hook and what God wants our ego so that we think so highly of ourselves that we ignore God and what God wants for our lives. He says, go for it. 
indulge in that sin because it's not that big of a deal. Or he gets us to look around the room and see people that are doing things that are worse than what we're doing. And so we say, well, what I'm doing is not that big of a deal. Satan tempts us to think that sin is virtuous. And so we, we believe the lie that, that things like drunkenness, right? Drunkenness, we, we start to believe, is, is really about just being social, right? We drink too much. We drink underage because it's fun. It helps me make friends. We tell ourselves we're not proud. We're just really confident. Probably something I should. It's about hooking up isn't about God's command for sex within marriage. It's about self-exploration, which is at the heart of individualism. And speaking of individualism, individualism, Satan loves to tempt us into believing that our sins don't affect anybody else. You see, remember when God saves us, he brings us into his family, and we're sons and daughters living in his kingdom, living together for him and his kingdom. So think, think for a second about your own family. Have you ever experienced the consequences of someone in your family, their negative actions? Maybe your dad, your mom. True of God's family. See, if you're like me, of course you have. And the same is true of God's family. And so don't be tempted into believing the lie that your sins don't affect other people in this room or your group of friends. Where is Satan tempting you? Where is he whispering in your ear, go away? Where is he tempting you to doubt God's promises, God's word, to abandon Jesus? Or is he tempting you to forget about what God wants in favor of what you want or what our culture tells you that you need? Paul says that our struggle, and it's against his scheme, and it's against someone, and it's against Satan, and it's against his schemes, his accusations, his temptations. Okay, question three. How then do we overcome this struggle? Paul says there's only one way. Ephesians 6, 13 to 18. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of the evil evil one, field of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil, evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. See, Paul doesn't say if, he says when evil comes. Evil will come. Our struggle against Satan as Christians is inevitable. But we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can overcome this struggle by empowering ourselves to do anything. Notice in those verses, Paul doesn't say, put on the belt of try harder. He doesn't say, take up the shield of get your crap together. Or put on the helmet of you do you. He doesn't say that stuff. No, he says the only way that we're going to overcome our struggle with Satan is with God's strength, with God's armor, truth, righteousness, peace, 
faith, salvation, the word of God. You see, just as a Roman soldier would have worn armor in war to save his life, so too Paul tells us that the only thing that's going to save our in the midst of our struggle with the devil is by putting on God's armor. It's God's armor that enables us to stand up against Satan. And this imagery of armor that, that Paul is talking about, he's, he's taking that from the Old Testament, and he's taking it specifically from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. And in chapter 59, Isaiah is talking about this future king, this, this coming savior, this coming messiah. And in verse 17, he says this about this coming savior. He says, he put on righteousness as his breastplate. He, and the helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance. We know from the New Testament, self in zeal as in a cloak. And we know from the New Testament that this coming Savior that Isaiah is prophesying about is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the faithful one, the one who lived a life of perfect righteousness for us, our Savior. The one who conquered Satan definitively, once and for all, on the cross, through his death, and in his resurrection. This is, after all, what the Apostle John, another one of Jesus' close friends, says that Jesus came for. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared to defeat Satan, the devil's work. You see, Jesus came to defeat Satan. And that is precisely what he's done in his death and his resurrection. And so that, that, that third question that we ask, how do we overcome this struggle? Well, ultimately, we already have in Christ. Jesus has already triumphed over Satan and his powers. And because of this, we no longer have to live in fear of the tyranny of Satan. Okay, but, but Paul knows that we live in a tension, Right? This tension of the already and the not yet, because though Jesus has already overcome Satan, this side of heaven for us in this life, the fruits of that victory aren't they're going to realized yet. So I'm about to do something that's either going to make me lose some street cred with you or gain some. Uh, nevertheless, I'm going to make a reference. So think about Harry Potter. Okay, street cred, good. <sighs> Affirmation, Yes. Think about Harry Potter, book seven, not the very end, but close to the end, specifically Neville, Neville, and, and, and more specifically, Neville's encounter with Voldemort's snake, Nagini, and what does Neville do? He pulls out a sword, and he cuts that snake's head off. Whether or not you have any idea what I'm talking about, you can get the point, right? When you cut off a snake's head, it's by right? It still thrashes around for a while before it finally becomes limp. So this tension that Paul is talking about, this already and the not yet, it's similar. It's similar because Satan's head has effectively been cut off. It's been cut off. Jesus cut Satan's head off. But this side of heaven, his body is still thrashing around. It's causing chaos. It's causing evil. It's causing sin. And Paul knows that, and that's why he's exhorting us. He says, we've got to fight. We've got to fight to believe. We've got to fight to hope. We've got to fight to trust in the gospel. We've got to fight to trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And one but until then, this returns, Satan will stop. But until then, we have to fight. 
So as the music team comes up, I'll stop here. I don't, I don't know exactly where Satan is accusing you. I don't know specifically for you where he's tempting you. But what I do know is that everyone in this room struggles against him. And here's the deal. When Satan tempts you into sin, when he accuses you by saying, you will never be good enough for God, you know what we say? If you're a Christian, do you know what you say to that? Because of Jesus, we can say you're not good enough. You are right, Satan, because apart from Jesus, I'm not good enough for God. But you know what? I've got Jesus. I'm in Jesus, and I'm forgiven. There is now no condemnation for me in Christ. See, Satan is real. Satan is scheming against you. He's scheming to tempt you into sin. And when he does, and when you fall into sin, because we all do, myself included, you see, we have to remember that the sins that you struggle with, the sins that I'm struggling with, are sins that have already been forgiven in Jesus. And so we don't use that, be ready to sin. Rather, Paul tells us to be alert, be ready to fight. Know the particular sins that Satan likes to throw at you. Put on the belt of truth, the truth of who Jesus is. Fasten the breastplate of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. Take up the shield of faith and the gospel and the helmet of salvation that only Jesus brings and the word of God. Pray. Put your faith in the gospel and stand Paul says, stand firm in your struggle against Satan with Jesus' strength. You see, we sang that song earlier, we are not. And so as we go into the song that we're about to sing, let's praise our Savior, Jesus, the one who has won victory over Satan already through his blood. Hail the King. Praise his name. Amen. Amen.